Welcome to the Glyndebourne podcast on Rameau's Ippolite et Arisi, which is being performed as part of the 2013 festival. Philippe Rameau was one of the most prolific and important composers of the Baroque, both as a practitioner and as a theorist. He published his Treatise on Harmony in 1722. He didn't come to opera until 1733 with Hippolyte et Arisi, but as Janice Brooks, professor of music at Southampton University, explains, that debut opera is full of treasures. Rameau's music is is fantastic. He's an almost exact contemporary of Handel and Bach, and his music is just as wonderful. It's rich, it's varied. There's so much to like about everything uh, of Rameau's, his keyboard music, his vocal music. Hippolyte Arissi is particularly wonderful because it has a wonderful libretto. Pellerin um, produced an absolutely fantastic adaptation um, so that you get quite a lot of the variety of all of Rameau in this one piece. It's amazingly rich. It's got some stunning set pieces in it, um, but it's also never boring. It's all of Rameau in one opera, uh, it seems to me, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Rameau was born in 1683 in Dijon, where his father worked as an organist. It was said that he was taught music before he could read or write, and that he developed a passion for opera at an early age. But all of this has to be treated with some scepticism in the light of a retrospective urge to set up the image of Rameau as a child prodigy. Janice Brooks. Rameau is a kind of curious person in the history of music because we know relatively little about his early life and quite a lot about his later career. I mean, he became very, very famous uh, throughout Europe, not just in France. Early on, he seems to have been active mainly as an organist. He was from a family of organists. His father was the organist at Notre Dame in the city of Dijon, and that's where Rameau was born, and that's where he had some of his earliest jobs. He also seems to have gone to Italy for a little time when he was young, maybe around 18, for only a few months, perhaps, and he later regretted that he hadn't stayed in Italy for longer. This is a bit ironic, because later on he is criticised when he becomes an opera composer. He's criticized for writing music that sounded too Italian, when of course he never spent very much time in there. And the person who's held up as the big star of French opera, whose music is held up as the, the one that everybody has to live up to, is Lully, who of course was Italian, but he's being put up as the, as, as the great French tradition. Whereas Rameau, who only ever spent a few weeks in Italy in his whole life, is being criticized for writing music that sounds too Italian. Jean-Baptiste Lully was some 50 years older than Rameau, and it was he who, during the reign of Louis XIV, had really established the preeminence of music and musical performance at the court of Versailles. During the 1740s, Rameau received many commissions from Louis XV, the Sun King's successor, and he was rewarded with the title Compositeur du Cabinet du Roi. 
the writer and mythographer Marina Warner sees a connection here to the opening scene of Hippolyte et Arisie. There seems to me that in that opening scene of Jupiter presiding over the, over the court of heaven, there's a gentle parody of the court of Versailles or the court of any royal court of the time, um, in which the rules will be set. And sometimes they were you know, arbitrary rules of table manners or of conduct and gesture. And sometimes those rules did edge into ethics. So there were certain limitations on what courtiers could do or what relations they could have. I, I detect in that setting of the scene of a game, as it were, that love will only take place on one day and the rest of the time people will be chased. There's a, just an element of that kind of courtly spirit of play and of the gods playing with their subjects as the king could play, the absolute monarch could play with his subjects. Prologue to the opera opens with Diana, the virgin huntress, and Venus, goddess of love, quarrelling over the respective claims of chastity and desire. This opposition sets out the essence of the plot. Hippolyte, son of the hero Theseus, is a modest young man, chastely devoted to his beloved Achisi, who is an acolyte of Diana. But, as we shall see, his stepmother Phaedra is ruled by the disruptive influence of Venus. In putting on operas about gods and heroes, the original audience at Versailles was treated to spectacular stage sets, sumptuous costumes and startling theatrical effects. Janice Brooks. The production of French opera in this period is principally the business of the Académie Royale de Musique, which is a quasi-court establishment that was founded by Lully during the reign of Louis XIV, Louis XIV. And so this is basically a state organization. And in fact, French operatic culture is different from most other European cultures in the extent to which opera is identified so closely with the state. This also means it's very difficult for composers to have their works performed in this very controlled environment. But it also means that it has enormous resources. So French opera not only in this period, but right through the 18th and 19th centuries, is the most lavish kind of opera you can imagine. The staging and the musical resources that were available were so much bigger than those of strictly commercial theatres who had to completely pay their way. The story of Rameau's opera follows the myth of Phaedra, who tries to seduce her stepson Hippolytus. This is the subject of Euripides' play Hippolytus, and there are many other versions. But the most important source for Rameau is Jean Racine's well-known tragedy Phaedre, which dates from 1677. Marina Warner. The myth was told many times in different ways. Seneca picks it up for the Roman stage, and Racine rewrites it for the French stage. And actually, I would say that it's Racine's Phaedre, which the play we know best. And it was recently, for example, rendered by Ted Hughes very powerfully. Now, Racine is very interesting because Racine 
thought he was being very faithful to the Greek myths. In many occasions, he's the first person to render them into a vernacular language. He went to the Bibliothèque Nationale and he read the original Greek manuscripts, an astonishing thought. And he thought he was being actually faithful, but he had a sensibility that didn't allow him to go entirely with the cruelty of the stories. And he often introduces softenings and changes. And he also always throws the emphasis on the struggle of the characters for emotional virtue, to find their passion but express it in a virtuous way. There's more individual sense of the internal life of the figures in the myth than the larger structure of the gods' ironic revenges on humans, which we get in Euripides. And actually in Euripides, more than in Sophocles or the other tragedians, he's already more interested in the emotions, and Racine takes that further. In Rameau's opera, this emphasis on the emotions is something that is key to the music for all the characters. But Phaedra herself is the centre of attention. So who is she and what happens in the story? Marina Warner. Well, Phaedra is one of the doomed and cursed heroines of Greek myth who suffers a terrible revenge of divine justice. She's married to Theseus, and he is the great hero. I mean, he's been on numerous exploits, fought the Amazons, and, and he's a legendary, very macho hero figure. And he's made a bet with his best friend, Pirithus, that they can abduct powerful women. And Theseus has abducted the Amazon queen, and Pirithus sets himself the task of abducting the queen of the underworld, Persephone herself, and he's come a cropper. He's gone down to the underworld and he's been found. So Theseus decides to go down to the underworld to save his friend Pirithus. And Phaedra thinks, understandably, that this is an exploit that he's not going to come back from. And he hasn't come back for quite a while. And meanwhile, his son, by an earlier marriage, Hippolytus, is in the palace and he's a beautiful young man. And Phaedra becomes inflamed by Venus with love of this young man, who is taboo because he is actually incestuously too close to her for her to have him as her lover. But she's persuaded by her nurse that this is wrong because Hippolytus and she have no blood in common. And she does declare her love to Hippolytus. is enthralled to Venus, but her inappropriately directed desire is not the only problem. Hippolytus, by contrast, is dedicated to Diana, who in Greek mythology is perpetually virgin. Hippolytus, in the play that we have from the 5th century BC by Euripides, has vowed himself to the goddess Diana, the goddess of chastity, against the goddess of love, Aphrodite. So he's a votary of celibacy. 
and he's completely outraged, scandalised, when Phaedra declares her passion for him. And then the myth takes a sort of dreadful turn, a dreadful swerve, which is that Theseus returns from the underworld, and Phaedra is so humiliated by her rejection and so enraged that she denounces Hippolytus to Theseus and says that he's tried to rape her. And Theseus believes his wife, and he curses his son. Rameau's libretto was created by Simon-Joseph Pellerin, a playwright who'd already written a number of tragedies on Greek and Roman themes. But he made key changes to the myth and to Racine. Marina Warner. Racine's version is the version that Pellerin, Rameau's librettist, chose uh, to follow. And there the character of Hippolytus is changed. He's still chaste, but now he has a girlfriend. And of course that makes a huge difference, because instead of it being a story of a young man whose sexuality is in doubt since he's totally vowed against women, and an older woman in love with someone who's impervious to her charms, we actually have a, a rival story, a story of an older woman rivaling with a younger woman. And in, so and that is why the opera is called Hippolyte et Arissi. The, the whole emphasis is no longer on Phaedra. The emphasis is now on will these young lovers actually manage to achieve their love? Or will they be prevented by this older, lustful woman um, and the vicissitudes of fate? But it's still this older, lustful woman who holds centre stage. In the 19th century, the famous tragic actress Rochelle triumphed in Racine's version. More recently, Helen Mirren played her on the London stage. Sarah Connolly is singing Phaedra in Glyndebourne's production, and she knows how demanding and intense this role can be. The wonderful Act Three begins with Phaedra's aria, Cruelle Mère, and here she's lamenting the fates really have dealt her the worst possible blow to fall in love with someone who doesn't love her. Um, unattainable love. And in comes the object of her desire, Hippolyte, and says the most unimaginable thing. I think it's a good idea that, uh, in the absence of my father, that I do become the next ruler with you beside me. And she can't quite believe what she's heard. And um, what he means is as the dowager queen, and that you will be given a nice home somewhere. No decisions, but you will be respected. She, at this point, she hasn't quite realised that he doesn't want to marry her, but she's still saying, yes, well, of course, I'll accept that, and... And then he says, and of course, I couldn't do any of this without Arisi. Arisi, tout ce que j'aime, et si je veux régner, ce n'est que sur son corps. Que dites-vous, au seul qui dévoilera, malgré mon trophée, And at this point, Fedre freezes and in the music she's given a little pause and she goes que dites-vous au ciel quelle était mon erreur what terrible mistake have i made despite my offering you the throne you want and love arisi and he goes 
my goodness me, your hatred knows no bounds. And then she says, tremble before the lightning strikes and the thunder rolls. You will be doomed. I will make sure that everybody turns against you. You deserve the worst things to happen to you. And I will make sure that they do. Just at this point when she's about to grab his sword and kill herself, in comes Theseus, to much to everybody's complete and utter amazement. Theseus is returned from the underworld. He is astonished at the tableau before him and assumes the worst of his son. He challenges Hippolytus, who refuses to accuse the queen. Phaedra's confidant, Inoni, confirms the king's suspicions and Theseus prays to Poseidon, the god of the sea, for his son's destruction. As Hippolytus flees to Arisi, a sea monster appears and carries him off. Finally, Phaedra confesses her crimes. Sarah Connolly. The lament at the end where she is truly sorry for what her, her part in Hippolyte's death. Quelle plainte en ces lieux m'appelle. Um, he is no more and his death is entirely my fault. I allowed everybody to think he forced himself upon me and the revenge will fall on my head. I, I will have to die. music is extraordinary. I mean, it's all in the sort of G minor, it's all in this dark, lamenting key. And what the wonderful thing about this passage is that there's lots of lovely sevenths, major and minor sevenths, and ninths, and really twisting harmonies that are very moving. I mean, to, even to arias today, where we're used to hearing all of these sort of harmonies all the time, particularly in Mahler, that there's something very, very beautiful and almost romantic about this passage. And towards the end of this piece, she is when she goes ciel, she's referring to the gods, which presumably are all looking at her, judging her and saying, but, you know, they're the ones that cause the problem. And she rails at them. How could you do this to me? Dieu cruel, vengeurs implacables, suspendez un courroux qui me glace d'effroi that turns me to ice. If you have any pity, do not rage at me anymore. We do tend to think of Baroque opera as all spectacle and display, show rather than substance. But Marina Warner points out that this is actually a time when the artifice of the Baroque was giving way to and including the new ideals of the Enlightenment. Rameau himself had worked on librettos with Voltaire, the most outspoken champion of freedom of religion and freedom of expression in the mid-18th century. Marina Warner. In, in some ways, I, I mean, I found it surprising that 
Rameau, who I associated with very artificial Baroque uh, fancies, was actually working with Voltaire. They seemed to me, when I first started thinking about this, to belong to different eras and to be different moods and different perspectives. But it turns out, no, they're not. They were actually seeking this kind of lucidity and this greater enhanced humanity against you know, the tide of ignorance in the past. The 18th century was a period of great change and flux. And in some ways, Rameau's Hippolyte et Arrissi looks forward to the emphasis on personal feeling that was to come at the end of the century with the Romantics. Rameau and Pellerin's version of Racine hints at this radical break to come. In, in Racine, there's definitely a, a, a violent opposition between Phaedre, who in her most famous speech says, C'est Venus à sa poitre. It's Venus attached to her on her prey. You know, I'm her prey, she says. And Hippolytus, of course, is bowed to Diana. So the two of them, the two poles of the concept of the body, if you like, are in, in opposition in Racine. Hippolytus is the chaste, closed body that repels all invaders. Phaedre is the body that is vulnerable, that is wounded, opened, attacked, entered by outside forces. And it seems to me that Marina Warner's picture of Phaedra as the wounded, embattled body is one that Sarah Connolly would recognise as she takes on the role of Phaedra as created by Rameau. I think he sympathises with her. He gives her the most beautiful music and I think that's a sign always with composers that if if the music is chopped up and vicious then then I think the composer doesn't like the character very much. But if it's lyrical and melancholic, then I think we can pretty much guarantee that Rameau meant her to be a sympathetic character. But she should also be very tough, have, have that glacial side to her nature that is, uh, shall we say, is cracked by the end. She tries very hard to show how strong she is, but actually she's um, a, a sort of insecure mess. So while the opera ends with general rejoicing as Hippolyte and Achesi are reunited with Diana's blessing, our sympathies still stay with Phaedra. It's a peculiarly modern inflection. The happy ending is the artifice. Phaedra's sad fate is the reality. For Marina Warner, this opera comes at a pivotal moment, pointing us towards the great psychological music dramas that will follow in the 19th and 20th centuries. Rameau made this, took this important step, you know, that instead of it being a, simply a spectacle with clever stage illusions and mythological characters, um, he wanted to have a libretto that, like a Racine play or like a Euripides play, would go deep into people's internal workings and capture the intensity of their passions. It's, it's absolutely wonderful that the Rameau opera is being performed in England because I think it gives us a real marker historically as to how the later poetic narratives of operas came into being. Because we're quite used to, you know, obviously Wagner and Pelias and Melisande or Bluebeard's Castle, this, this kind of mythological terrain set to music has become familiar. But Rameau really is key to that history, to the choices he made, the importance of the psychological libretto. Those were his choices. <laughs> 